All right. Welcome to Friday night lecture. This is, believe it or not, our second last lecture of the term. So next week, Dick is going to finish us off with... Well, not finish us off. <laughs> <laughs> finish the term with a lecture called The Rise of Outrage. <laughs> and this is the blurb for it. In a world where the dominant source of moral authority for the individual is increasingly one's own emotions, mm-hmm. outrage has become the quickest path to moral conviction and to political influence. How should we understand this and respond to it? I want to know the answer. <laughs> so does Dick. He's yes, still he's still working. <laughs> well, tonight's lecture is, I added a little phrase to it. And the first part now is there aren't there just aren't enough days in the weekend. <laughs> Finding Sabbath rest in the Lord of the Sabbath, the fuller uh, title. And here are the questions we're going to look at tonight. These will be our guiding questions in order. So first off, what did Sabbath mean in the Old Testament? Secondly, what did Jesus do with the Sabbath in the New Testament? And thirdly, how do we find Sabbath rest today? This is our basic outline, and we're going to start with, what did Sabbath mean in the Old Testament? So this is Friday. This is Friday night's lecture, and my guess is a lot of people, maybe millions of people, have either said or thought something like, thank God. It's Friday. And maybe not because they're anticipating our lecture tonight, (laughs) but probably because most people uh, are anticipating the weekend. Friday is when the weekend begins. And it's when we enter a different time. We throw off our weekday work clothes and we put on our weekend party clothes. Because sweatpants, maybe. Uh, Depending on who you are. Uh, Because you're entering a different time, right? This is work-less time. When we have time off, downtime, free time. When we can do whatever we want in our own sweet time. That we hope is going to be a good time when we lose all track of time. And then suddenly... We're all out of time. And we're going back into weekday work time. There's there's just not enough days in the weekend. Now my guess is most most of us would think the weekend is a good idea. That whoever came up with this idea, they should be acknowledged, honored, thanked. Well... That happens every Friday (laughs) when someone says, thank God, it's Friday. (laughs) If only we meant it. So as far as I know, the first time in recorded human history that we ever see something like a weekend is with the Jewish people. That's something to pay attention to. So this is one of the main things that distinguished them from other cultures. In fact, they were even ridiculed for it, being uh, labeled lazy. They had a lazy day. Lazy Sunday. Anybody remember that from (laughs) Saturday Night Live? Um, 
It was Lazy Saturday, though, for them. And, yeah, there's no other culture that we know of that had this regular, every seven day, no work day. Something to pay attention to. uh, Sabbath actually literally means stop. Just stop. Stop, especially working for a day. In fact, the words Saturday and sabbatical, they derive from the Hebrew word for Sabbath. The original Sabbath was Saturday. It's the culmination of the week. It's the end of the week. It's the week end. But this day changed, or rather expanded, with the coming of Jesus. Because there just weren't enough days in the weekend. So, the first people to follow Jesus were Jews, who had the Sabbath, right? This was a day of rest for them, who rested on this day. But then these Jewish followers of Jesus started gathering on Sunday. Because they were convinced that this day was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And so they started gathering on the Lord's Day, they called it. And of course, the historical evidence for this is substantial. If you haven't read the evidence for it, you need to. Uh, N.T. Wright is one of the best people, I think, on this. His work, he has larger works on this and shorter works, (laughs) depending on how much time you have. But those are worth reading to give you confidence in this reality, this historical event. But back to Sunday, at first Sunday wasn't a day off. And Christians weren't fighting for it to be a day off, right? Again, they were mostly Jews. They were already meeting on Saturday for the most part, on their Sabbath, in the synagogue. But then they would also meet before work, on Sunday morning, the first day of the week. We tend to think of Monday as the first day of the week, the beginning of the week. No, actually Sunday is the first day of the week. And then what happened is over time, over centuries, that day started looking more and more like a Christian Sabbath. Not because that was laid out in the New Testament. We'll get into some of that. But that's just kind of what happened over time. As especially more and more Gentiles became part of the church, became the vast majority of the church. And so then eventually over centuries, that day ended up becoming a day off, not just for Christians, but for the larger culture. And so you first have the Jewish holiday, a day off for them, then for Christians, and then both days off for the broader culture. And voila, you have the weekend. That's a really short version, oversimplified version. There's lots of ups and downs in that story. But it's important to know the roots of the weekend go back, especially to the Jewish Jewish (laughs) Sabbath. Now, it's been said the Sabbath is one of the greatest gifts of the Jewish people to the world. But I think the Jewish scriptures would say, actually, it's the greatest gift of God, or one of the greatest gifts of God to the world that came through the Jewish people. And the story of how that came about is, again, in the Jewish scriptures. (laughs) Lots of S's in this talk. And what we call the Old Testament but are in fact also the Jewish scriptures. Now before we just get into that, I want to recognize that not everyone has experienced the specialness of Sabbath. Whether that be a Saturday or a Sunday or any day. 
Of course, there's some of us who just don't know when to stop working. Uh, we don't know how to stop and enjoy ourselves. There's other of us who have memories of these long and exhausting church activities mm-hmm. that go on from morning till night that are far from restful and refreshing. And then there's other of us who have memories of a lot of restrictions on Sunday. Maybe we're the same people and we can't do anything fun. <laughs> can't listen to certain music, can't play certain sports, can't buy certain things. Uh, it's mostly about restrictions. <clears throat> and then others just imagine the Sabbath as this undesirable bondage that Jesus now frees us from. And there's lots of that, I understand. But I also know more and more people are seeing, experiencing, longing for the goodness Mm -hmm. of Sabbath Mm -hmm. and Sabbath rest. There's been a shift that's been happening. Someone who's helped with this shift has been uh, Abram Heschel. He was a Jewish, he's no longer alive, I think he died in 72 But he was a Jewish rabbi, philosopher, scholar, author, activist. But he helped people to see the beauty of the Sabbath. As he put it here, the Sabbath isn't just some interruption in our week. The Sabbath is an ascent to the summit. Uh, It's something like the closest we can get to paradise on earth. That's kind of how his book reads. But he and others are, yeah, part of this shift and this longing, this desire for Sabbath rest, because we know what Doug McKelvey wrote in one of his his first prayer book. This is volume one, Every Moment Holy. Volume two, you can pre-order now, by the way. It's going to be on uh, suffering, grief, and hope. Order. This is volume one. This is from one of his prayers, basically a book of prayers. And yeah, we pray from this quite a bit at Labrie. We find it quite helpful. And this is one of them. O Christ, our Sabbath, you have fashioned us to function best in rhyming lines of work and rest. (laughs) Joshua knew it. He's got memorized too. Um, Yeah, we need rhythms of work and rest. We need Sabbath to do well, to live well. This is how we were formed, how we were fashioned. Which takes us back to when we were fashioned in Genesis. So in fact, the first example of work and rest is not with humans. It's with God, according to the scriptures. It's on page one of the Bible. Right off the bat, we're told... God created the world, the heavens and the earth, in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. That's a big deal. Now, right off the bat, seven is not just the mathematical number that comes after six in the Bible. Seven is more than a number in the Bible. In the Bible, seven means something. It means fullness. It means completeness. So that's why God rested on the seventh day, the completed day. Not just because it happened to come after the sixth day, 
Not just because after six days of work, man, he was tired and exhausted and he needed a rest. No, he rested on the seventh day because the seventh day is the day of fullness, completeness. So seventh day is everything full, completed, and as it should be day. That's what seven is telling us in this. And that's when it's time to rest and delight in what you have made, even for God. Even every day is almost a little mini rest. Right? He works through the day, and then it was evening and morning. But at the end of the day, what does it say he does? He saw that it was good. He's, his rest is not just sitting there exhausted. He's delighting mm-hmm. in the works of his hands. That's something of what we need to know and keep in mind. So, the non-working... Uh, resting weekend wasn't our idea. It was God's idea. And he was the first one to practice it. And it was his example that Israel was called to follow. So this is the first version of the Ten Commandments. If you didn't know, there's two versions, one in Exodus, and one in Deuteronomy, and there's a story behind why there was two we can't get into. But this is what the first version says. Remember the Sabbath day and... Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day it's a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So, maybe we can see right here after that, God is not a workaholic. (laughs) And neither should we be. (laughs) And so Israel here is being told to imitate their creator who works and rests. Which for humans is therefore then translated into this weekly seven-day work-rest rhythm. So in effect, every week Israel was to reenact the creation story in their very life. And this rest wasn't just for the privileged few. We maybe read that list and we pass over it quickly, but This is really special. This is social justice (laughs) going on here. So it doesn't matter, you know, your age, your sex, your social economic status, your immigration status, or even your species. (laughs) Even the animals get a break. Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, this reenacting of of God's uh, work-rest rhythm it wouldn't only just give them rest from their works, it would also help them, remind them to rest in God's works. We're going to say this is crucial for rest. It's not just resting from something. It's always about resting in something as well. You can't typically do one without the other. So primarily on the Sabbath, the Sabbath is about resting in 
not the works of our hands anymore. We take our focus off the works of our hands and we focus on the works of God's hands. And the first work, of course, is creation. And we can rest in that. We can rest that he brought a cosmos out of the chaos. Now, most of us maybe don't aren't used to reading Genesis this way, but it's important to pay attention to the very first two verses of the Bible and what's being given to us right here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So darkness, formless, empty. So what we have here is unlivable, inhospitable chaos. None of us would live or survive in this situation. No animal. When did these come here? (laughs) There is no let there be the earth. There is no let there be the darkness. There is no let there be the waters. They're just there. How long have they been there? How did they get this way? Why are they this way? We don't know. We're not told. What we are told is what God did with this situation. And that's one of the bigger points being made. What did he do? He spoke light into the darkness. He formed what was formless. He filled what was empty with life. That's what he does next. It's beautiful. So yes, this earth he made to support us, to support our weight. We can put our full weight on planet Earth. It nourishes us. God made it so that the air puts life into our lungs and into our veins. That's something to rest in. God made this world to sustain us with life. He made it abundant with life and life-giving. There wouldn't be one farmer on the planet if that wasn't true. They didn't believe that. So I think a good Sabbath practice for me is to go out on a bike ride or on a walk, get out on the water, preferably where there's a lot of trees, and just look around and behold how good and beautiful and life-giving, abundant with life everything is that God has made. Just take a big breath and rest in that. (laughs) That's practicing Sabbath. That's resting in the works of God, the finished work of God in creation. So, our creator, that's the thing he kind that's the kind of thing he does. He did this in a major way in creation, but this is the kind of thing he continues to do when you read the biblical story. This kind of thing, turning what is chaotic into what is livable and hospitable and beautiful and life-giving. I remember a time when we lived in Switzerland and I was sitting with Anna. We were on the edge of Lake Geneva. And we were just sitting there weighed down by a lot of stuff, just stuff that seemed beyond our abilities. And then we just looked out here. We looked out at the lake, the beautiful Lake Geneva, and then in the background you have the Swiss Alps, And it was a bright, sunny day, blue sky. And you just imagined how at one point, this was all darkness, formless, Mm. empty, 
And God did this with that. And if he could do that with the cosmic chaos, he can handle our little chaos. Suddenly our, our problems didn't seem so big and impossible. We were learning how to rest from our works and rest in his works. That's part of what we're, we're to do for Sabbath as we look at creation. Back to number seven. So there's been many debates over whether we should be understanding, interpreting the seven days in a scientific textbook kind of way or in a more poetic approximation kind of way. I'm definitely on the poetic end of things. For one, science, as we know, it didn't exist back then. And with all these refrains, with these rhythmic frames of God said, and it was so, and there was morning, and there, there's evening, and there was morning, the such and such day. That sure sounds more like poetry than scientific textbook kind of things. But again, beyond that debate, just remember, seven in the Bible doesn't just mean the number after six. It's more than a number. It's more like an icon on your computer that stands for something bigger. So like an icon stands for an app or a file or a function. Seven stands for some things that are bigger, like fullness, completeness, and temple. So during this time, if something took seven years, seven days, seven something, the person listening would know, oh, what's being built is sacred, a sacred temple. That would be a clue. For example, the temple for Baal in Canaan, the Canaanite god, was built in supposedly seven days. The tabernacle that was built, was built and for the Hebrews, the tabernacle of the Hebrews was built in seven acts. The temple of Solomon, or the temple that Solomon built for God was built in seven years. So when you hear seven, you're supposed to hear temple. Temples are built with sevens. That's how it worked back then. Now certainly one of the points being made in Genesis is the creator of heaven and earth is not Baal. The creator of heaven and earth is Yahweh. The God of the Exodus, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's one of the main points being made in Genesis. It's using the same language as a lot of creation myths, but it's saying Yahweh is the creator. The creator's like Yahweh, not like Baal. But more than that, we're being told that when Yahweh, our creator, was making heaven and earth, he was, in fact, making a cosmic temple palace for himself to rest in and to rule from. So, yeah, seven means completeness, it means fullness, and it means temple. So, people, yeah, they've pointed out other patterns of seven. And say, for example, again, Solomon, he built the temple in seven years, and he dedicated the temple on the seventh month, during a seventh-day festival, and his speech was structured around seven petitions. And temples are permeated with, built with the number seven, which you see a ton of in Genesis, in fact, if you look at the Hebrew 
which we can't do unless we read Hebrew. But in Genesis 1, there are seven, Genesis 1-1, there are seven Hebrew words. Genesis 1-2, there are 14 Hebrew words, 2 times 7. There are seven paragraphs in Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3, marked by evening and morning. The concluding seven paragraph in Genesis 2, 1 to 3 has three lines with seven words each. You're not going to remember all that. It doesn't matter. <laughs> the point is, there's sevens everywhere to help you say and hear temple, temple, temple. But yeah, when God was creating, seven is saying he was he was bringing fullness. You see, that's what he says. He's filling all these things with life. He's bringing completeness. He's finishing something. But what he's finishing is a cosmic temple palace for himself. So in Hebrew, the word for palace, temple, house, it's, it's, all this, it's one word for all those things. We have a word for, for kings. We would say would dwell in a palace, gods in a temple, normal people in a house. In Hebrew, it's one word. But there are numerous other clues in these chapters that indicate when God is creating, he's doing this, he's, he's building a temple. And one would be, for example, during this time, if a temple was made for a God, one of the last things you would do would you would put a, an image of the God in the temple. And then there would be this ritual t- that would supposedly put the life of the God in the image. And then it could function as, as the image properly. Doesn't that sound familiar? God makes his cosmic temple palace, and then he makes his image, Adam and Eve, which represents every human being as well. We're all made in the image of God. And then he fills them with life, his own breath. And they are there to rest and to rule with him. That's what they were supposed to do in his cosmic temple palace. And I can't go into all the other the details. There's a ton where you could see the Garden of Eden is something like a Holy of Holies. And if you do want to look more into this, Gregory Beale has, done, has written a book on this theme throughout the Bible, how it's developed, how it changes, how it culminates in the new creation. He's also written an article, which is a lot shorter than this. It just summarizes it. I recommend that one. Just type in PDF, Gregory Beale, Temple. And you'll get his article, which is excellent. It gives you this whole story through the Bible of the temple. Another person who's written on this, especially in these two books, The Lost World of Genesis 1 and The Lost World of Adam and Eve, is John Walton. And he highlights the same point. This is a, this is a temple God's building. But he offers a very helpful illustration with the White House. And so, for example, it took eight years to build the White House. Not seven years, just eight years. (laughs) And after the work was finished, John Adams moves in. So after the builders rested from their labors, John Adams rested in their labors. He moved in, settled in, made the White House his home, his new resting place. So in the same way, when God was finished with the works of his hands, he rested in the works of his hand. After he finished making his own cosmic white house, so to speak, he made it his home. He, he moved in. So that this would be his new resting place. But the important point here 
also to make is that, for example, when John Adams moved in to make this his resting place, he didn't just do that so he would just put up his feet on a footstool all the time. He did it so now he would rule from this place of rest. So in the same way, God builds his cosmic white house to put up his feet on the footstool. That's another way God describes the earth as his footstool to, to rest in. But the purpose of that is so that he would rule from this place of rest. And that his images would rest and rule with him from that place of rest. But of course, when Adam and Eve turned their back on God, they turned their back on this rest and rule as well. And then we're forever restless and unruly. (laughs) And of course, they represent us. So we know very well what it means to be restless and unruly because we too have turned our backs on God. Well, it's a long time until we hear about Sabbath again. It's not until the Exodus. I'm just going to take a little drink because my throat is dry. So the Exodus we can think of as when God gave an exit to Israel, to the Hebrew people, from restless Egypt. When it was never enough bricks, and he was going to lead them to always enough manna. So in Egypt, Israel, the Hebrews, they were in a bad way, right? They were slaves making bricks for Pharaoh. And by the way, I just want to highlight... Walter Brueggemann's book here, Sabbath as Resistance, Saying No to a Culture of Now. It might even be better to say Saying No to a Culture of Consumerism, what he kind of sees as like the new slavery of our day in us in the West. Um, A lot of what I got here, especially the focus on economics, uh, I got from him. This Never Enough Bricks. It's an excellent book in that regard, if you want to read. It's uh, in, in seeing Sabbath as something even prophetic for our culture, for our day. Back to Israel, though. They were back in Egypt making bricks for Pharaoh all day, every day. There were no weekends in Egypt. No rest. Bricks in Egypt were used to build storehouses for grain. These storehouses were something like the banks of their day. Grain was the currency. It represented wealth. So more bricks equaled more grain, equaled more power, wealth. So there were never enough bricks. Which meant for slaves, there was no rest. You were going to be working yourself to death. Literally. No weekends, no Sabbath. Only oppressive, restless work. Well, God is not like Pharaoh. God is good, and God is a God of rest. So he comes to rescue them from this terrible living, working condition and leads them through the wilderness into the promised land, which is described as a land of... Flowing with milk and honey. And rest, yes. (laughs) Milk and honey is there too. Um, But on the way, 
even before the land of rest, he starts introducing them to the land of rest in the wilderness, where typically you would have to work very hard just to survive. He starts introducing Sabbath rest to them, first by giving them really easy work to do in the desert, in the wilderness. He starts giving them manna to eat. And all they have to do is collect it. That was their job. It's a pretty easy job. It was much better than building bricks all day, every day. And then on the sixth day, he would give them twice as much manna as they needed for that day so that they didn't have to work from their really hard job. The next day, he gave them a rest so they could rest um, for a whole day. He was teaching them both how to rest from their work and rest in his provisional work. And that's typically the only way we rest. Otherwise, we think we have to do it. We have to make it happen. But this story is for the Jewish people and for us to know we can trust God to give us enough manna for the day. Give us our daily bread, our daily manna. And this summer, we had a sabbatical. We took off this summer, many months, and, of course, the big question at the beginning was, without student fees, how are we going to pay the bills? <laughs> how is this going to happen? And uh, is God going to do this? And the answer was yes. He did provide, he made up for the student fees that we weren't going to get right at the beginning of our sabbatical. Mm-hmm. So we could rest in that. We could rest that there was going to be enough manna. <laughs> And uh, it's beautiful. It was a beautiful gift to us. He still does this kind of thing. We can trust him for it. So the uh, commandment to keep the Sabbath day holy, that strong commandment comes from one of the Ten Commandments. It's the fourth commandment in the Ten Commandments. And in each version, there's two versions of the Ten Commandments. Both of them start with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, the land of slavery, the land of overwork, of restless work. Both of those start the Ten Commandments. We're supposed to hear that grace first, redemption first, and we live out the Christian life or the Jewish life at this time. So the first version is connected to creation even though it's also connected to the Exodus at the beginning of the Ten Commandments. The second version, the Exodus, is emphasized again. So it's almost the exact same thing, and it says, Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. So hopefully you can see at this point how the Sabbath is relevant to life in Egypt. There's restless work, oppressive work in Egypt, and Israel's going to be a land of rest because things like the Sabbath, because God is God of rest. And creation and the Exodus aren't so different. Both of them are about God overcoming the chaos for life, for rest. So God overcame cosmic chaos in the creation He overcame social chaos in Egypt and led the people into life and rest in both cases. So I think this should ask, this this is a, a question we can live with is, 
in whatever sphere we are in, are we promoting Pharaoh's Egypt or Yahweh's land of rest? So, for example, if we're parents or educators, are we making a day off from schoolwork possible or practically impossible? I hear a lot of stories where it's practically impossible to have a day off from studies. That's more of Pharaoh's way, I think, than Yahweh's way. Or if we're employers, do we make it practically impossible to not have to check our emails and our texts or be in touch with our bosses? Or are we really making it possible for people to have a day off, to really have a rest from our work? Or are we working seven days a week, not because we're forced to, but maybe we just take ourselves and our work a little too seriously? (laughs) Or maybe we're like Pharaoh, and we just have in our hearts that there are never enough bricks. And we haven't learned the, the truth that there's always enough manna from Yahweh. Sabbath is a big deal in the Bible. And the Sabbath day, the seventh day of the week, is not the only Sabbath in the Old Testament. There were also these seven yearly Sabbaths, these feasts that happened every year, once a year, some of them for days or weeks, again, because there's just not enough days in the weekend. And these would be days not to work, but to celebrate the acts of God in history, things to remember, to celebrate resting and also anticipate as God has done in the past we can trust him to do in the future we can rest in that not only were these seven yearly Sabbaths there was every seven a seven year Sabbath every seven years they were to set slaves free they were to forgive debts they were even to give the land a rest for a whole year Then, every seven times seven year, this was a special Sabbath year, this was the Jubilee, where all the other things from the seven year Sabbath happened, as well as if you lost your land for some reason, you got it back. In this year, all was restored, all was forgiven. The Jubilee. So again, if we're just asking, hey, How can I find rest on the Sabbath? The scriptures are saying, no, your question's not big enough. It's about how can I give Sabbath to my neighbor? That's what the the goal of Sabbath is. It's about all of us getting Sabbath rest. All being forgiven. All being restored. It's a beautiful thing. Now, um, some people have tried to push this principle into foreign debt. So, for example, N.T. Wright is is a big proponent of this. He says, look, there's all these poor countries who are oppressed by the debt they owe to richer countries like the U.S. Debts they're probably never going to get out from under that are keeping them oppressed from flourishing. And the people who suffer the most are typically the most vulnerable. What if we forgave those debts? like the Jubilee. Why not? And T. Wright says, hey, we've forgiven big banks huge amounts of debt. 
why can't we do it for these countries that are are basically in Pharaoh's Egypt? Are we going to keep them there? Or are we going to work towards a land of rest for them? I think that's a big question. I think he's on to something that we need to pay attention to. Hopefully you see there how big Sabbath is. It's bigger and better, I think, than most of us think. I spent the most time on the Old Testament. It is the bigger part of the Bible, just saying. <laughs> and it's a huge theme there. And you need to get something of that to know what does Jesus do with it in the New Testament. It's a lot more powerful uh, when, you, when you get to know what's going on in the Old Testament, to see what Jesus did in the New Testament. Surprisingly, out of the Ten Commandments, every commandment is restated in the New Testament as a command, except the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the only one where you're never going to read from Jesus or Paul or any New Testament writer. You never hear any of them say, keep the Sabbath day. Now, it's still true, O Christ, our Sabbath you have fashioned us to function best in rhyming lines of work and rest. We still need rest. We still need weekends. We still need to gather and to celebrate the works of God, to remember them and to rest in them. But listen to what Paul says here. I find this shocking. This is from Romans. One person considers one day more sacred than another, like the Jews. <laughs> another considers every day alike, typically non-Jews. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. You would never read that in the Old Testament. Or how about Galatians 4, 10 to 11? This is even stronger. You are observing special days. Thank you. Special days, months, seasons, and years. It kind of looks like that. <laughs> and then when he says, I fear that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. <laughs> what happened? Paul, he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He knows the Old Testament like nobody else. What happened for him to say something like this? Well, of course, Jesus happened. This is what he says in Colossians. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. These are the food laws. Or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. That's why he said what he said in those other verses. The reality now is found in Christ. Everything I'm going to say from now on is really just saying that. Mm -hmm. So if you forget it, if you lose track, just come back to Colossians. The reality of the Sabbath is found in Christ. So Jesus said, I didn't come to 
abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. And the Sabbath was part of the law, most certainly. So he didn't come to get to give us less Sabbath. If anything, he came to give us more Sabbath. He fills, fulfills the Sabbath cup to overflowing. That's what he does. That's what I hope you'll see as we go on. Right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he starts off, he's in a synagogue on the Sabbath, and he reads from Isaiah 61. This is what he reads. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So, even from what I said earlier, you could tell probably, maybe, that this is about the year of Jubilee. That's what that passage is talking about. All those kinds of things. That's the kind of thing that's supposed to happen on a Sabbath. On the Sabbath rest. So this is, and this is something of like an ultimate jubilee in Isaiah. This isn't even just a regular jubilee, if you could say a jubilee is regular. (laughs) This is something like an ultimate jubilee. This is for the exiles coming back to hear of what God's going to do. This ultimate jubilee is coming. And Jesus is saying, guess what? It's here, and it's coming with me and through me. It's being fulfilled right here, right now, this day. And he demonstrated it by all kinds of things. Feeding people, forgiving people, delivering people, healing people. Basically giving all kinds of people all kinds of rest from all kinds of burdens. Mark Buchanan has this excellent book on Sabbath called The Rest of God, Restoring Your Soul by Restoring the Sabbath. An excellent book. We've given this to a ton of people here. We've really been blessed by it. But he said in here something that stuck with me ever since I read it, is that when Jesus was healing somebody on the Sabbath, which he was very intentional about doing, Mm -hmm. what he was doing was showing us the day's true intent. That's what the Sabbath was about. Giving people rest from things like diseases and afflictions, things that don't let them rest, Mm. right? If you have a chronic illness, you can't rest. It's always with you. Well, of course, he got into trouble for doing this with the religious authorities. For them, this was unlawful to do, of all things. And, of course, they thought it was okay to plan a murder on the Sabbath, the murder of the Lord of the Sabbath, in fact, just because he was healing somebody. <laughs> the irony of it all. We're just showing the day's true intent. So Jesus healed on the Sabbath, but he didn't just heal on the Sabbath. He gave people rest also from all other kinds of things, not just on the Sabbath, but in all days of the week. From the excessive rules of the Pharisees, from demonic powers, from 
guilt from sin. So with Jesus, God's Sabbath rest was bursting out of Saturday's wineskins. <laughs> so I think Jesus would agree there just weren't enough days in the weekend. <laughs> Saturday need to, to expand. Consider Good Friday. When Jesus said from the cross, it is finished. This is the phrase, the phrase, the finished work of Christ comes from, where Christ dealt in a final way with our sin and our guilt and all that separates us from God. It's finished. He's finished that work. Well, now that was on a Friday. When was the last time you heard something like it was finished? Maybe back in Genesis, right? It says, he had finished all the work he had done by the seventh day. So that means on the sixth day, it was finished. And on the seventh day, God rested. On Friday, Good Friday, Jesus said it was finished. And what did he do on Saturday, on the Sabbath? He was laying in a tomb, resting in his tomb. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He brought a cosmos out of the chaos. He brought creation of the chaos. In the new beginning, Jesus overcame the chaos of the fall and brought forth a new creation. That's what's coming forth from the tomb on Sunday morning. So that, yeah, when he he bursts out on Sunday morning, it's not just the first day of the week, a new week. It's a new week of a new creation coming forth where death itself, the burden of death, the chaos of death has been overcome. That's some Sabbath rest right there. <laughs> that's some Sabbath rest. So that's some, that's some new wine. Some new Sabbath wine for Sunday, for any day of the week. Yeah, we need to thank God. It's Friday, but I think we need to turn out and thank God for Good Friday. And for all that has brought us. Which brings us to the final question. How do we find Sabbath rest today? Well, I think it's important to keep in mind all the stuff from the Old Testament isn't now somehow untrue that we do away with. It's not less than that. It's just more than that. So it's still true. We're still fashioned to function best in rhyming lines of work and rest. We still need weekends. We still need times to gather as the people of God regularly, weekly, to celebrate the works of God, to rest in the works of God. But just remember, with Jesus now, because of the finished work of Jesus, the Sabbath is bigger and better than ever. So now we can come to Jesus anytime, any day, anywhere. Sabbath is no longer limited to one day. It's any day we want to come to him. So when we gather together as the body to receive the words of Jesus, to receive the bread and wine of Jesus, to receive the Holy 
Spirit of Jesus, those are opportunities every time to receive the rest of Jesus, to receive his rest, to be hungry for that, to ask for that, to look for that as we gather. When we start our day in the word and in prayer, those are opportunities to receive his rest right on that day. It doesn't have to be a Saturday or a Sunday. It can be this day, every day. And then we learn how to live out our day from that place of rest. And our days can become less and less restless, and we're learning how to be more and more restful of the rest that Jesus gives us. He says, come to me, and I'll just give it to you. (laughs) So we have a difference. In the Old Testament, it was keep the Sabbath day holy. And in the New Testament now, Jesus says, come to me, and I will give you rest. In Hebrews, we have a command to enter the rest. Enter the rest of God. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. Hebrews 4, 9 to 11. Yeah, this brings us again back to Genesis when God rested. Sabbath rest is about joining God in his rest. He rests, we rest with him. That's what Sabbath rest is about. And we're rest, going to rest with God, look forward to resting with God with an eternal rest, right? So back in Genesis, you go back there and you look, every day has, and it was evening, and it was morning, such and such day. Every day, but the Sabbath. Evening is not mentioned. You can look for it. You're not going to find it. A lot of people see this as a promise from God that one day, this weekly day, is going to turn into a day that never ends. This weekly rest will become an eternal rest. And that's certainly what we see by the end of the Bible. And of course, the claim of the New Testament is that in and through Jesus, we enter that rest with God. We rest and rule with God in Jesus, in the Lord of the Sabbath. So we're going to enter that one day fully and finally, but in the meantime, we're not just left looking for that rest. We can already start to receive that rest here and now, get a foretaste of it, grow in it. So the already not yet, if you've heard that, is at work here too. We already received the rest. We're not fully entering that rest yet. But we can grow in that. We can come to Jesus and learn how to receive rest from him even now. Anticipating that day when we will enter it fully and finally. So there's always going to be a little restlessness in us, I think. But it can become less and less. And we can become more restful and full as our days go by. N.T. Wright has one of the best chapters on how Jesus fulfills the Sabbath in the New Testament. I found this is one of the greatest weaknesses in all the books I read about the Sabbath. 
what about Jesus? What about what he did with the Sabbath? How he talked about it? What, what's going on there? And he writes, look, this isn't even a book on the Sabbath. It was just some chapter. He was giving an illustration. It was so good. I highly recommend it. I have the book here if you want to borrow it. What's the name of the chapter? Uh, the chapter is... Case Study Sabbath. Case Study Sabbath, yeah. Okay. The book is Scripture and the Authority of God, for those listening to the podcast. But he says in here that... All right, in the New Testament, Jesus is presented as a living, breathing, walking, talking temple. It's one of the things you got to get. And get that goes back again, remember, to Cosmic Temple Palace. That's part of the story. It's a really important one to, to get a hold of. He says, in the same way, Jesus is a living, breathing, walking, talking Sabbath. We no longer find rest in just a day. We can find rest any day in this person, the Lord of the Sabbath. O Christ, our Sabbath, as that prayer said. So N.T. Wright says, just like you don't need to light candles in a room when the sun is risen and the light is pouring in and flooding the room, in the same way you don't need to keep lighting the little Sabbath candles anymore when the Lord of the Sabbath is here pouring out his rest into whoever would receive it. We simply need to come to him, stay with him, and learn from him. All those three are important. We usually hear the first part, but not the other two. Come to me, he says, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. This is a gift. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Think back to the Exodus in the wilderness. That was Jesus at work. Um, the Son of Man is Lord. Mm-hmm. Sabbath. Sorry, real quick. It was come to him, and then what was the second one? And then stay with him? Come to him, stay with him, learn from him. Oh, there you go. Yep. Which I'll mention in a bit. We have about ten more minutes, five more minutes. So, Jesus is not like Pharaoh. He's not like the Pharisees. He doesn't work us to death. His burden is easy, light. He doesn't give us these huge pointless rules, burdens, and not willing to lift a finger to help us. He's not like that. He's the God creation of the exodus of grace. So in fact, he gives us rest just like God gave us rest in all those times, but even more so. And he has a yoke for us, and he says it's easy. A yoke doesn't always, it doesn't look like an easy thing. This is a yoke. This is what you put on an ox so they can, you can put a tool on them that's going to help plow the field. This is a yoke. This is a double yoke. There's one of these in the Swiss Libri library over the fireplace right there, and the idea being, well, Jesus is on one side, and we're on the other. We're yoked to him, but he's carrying the greater weight. So that's why the yoke is easy and the burden is light. If it's getting heavy, it's either because we're trying to carry the weight, or we've got a yoke that wasn't from Jesus. 
we need to ask, what is this yoke? Is it from Jesus? And I'm letting him carry the weight, the majority, or is it me? And I came across this painting that helped me imagine how Jesus does carry the greater weight. And this is, if you can see, the cross and a yoke brought together. And you can see how in this, Jesus is carrying the weight, the majority. Her work is simply to cling to Jesus. And even that, he's got his arm around her, holding her. He's, his is the greater work. When I go out um, on a prayer walk, I love going on a prayer walk in God's cosmic temple palace. If you like going on prayer walks, you, you know, you get what I'm saying. It helps me to pray when I go out there. I find myself more and more saying, yours is the greater work. Yours is the finished work. Yours is the ongoing kingdom work. Yours is the almighty, overcoming, awe-inspiring new creation work. That's something to rest in. That's what we're, we can rest in. But to rest in that, we need to come to him and learn from him how to do that. I think, again, that's what I was trying to say earlier. We've heard this passage many times. But I don't know how much we've heard the learn from me and how important that is for the rest. You need to learn from Jesus how to rest in Jesus. You learn from these scriptures what you can rest from and what you can rest in. You need to come to Jesus, which is mostly coming to him through these words and learning what we can rest from and what we can rest in. So, for example, we can just rest from trying to make ourselves significant by some impressive job or accomplishment or bank account or beautiful body. Jesus' works have already made us significant. He's already made us in his image. We're already those for whom he died. It doesn't get more significant than that for a human being. We can rest in that. He teaches us how to, to rest from the exhausting work of justifying ourselves. Of endless excuses for the things we've done wrong. We don't have to do that. We can rest in his justifying work. He justifies us. He justifies the ungodly. Mm -hmm. We can rest from this crazy idea of trying to love and change the world. That is not our side of the yoke. Mm -hmm. That is God's side of the yoke. Jesus says, what you're supposed to do is just love your neighbor. And we learned from Ecclesiastes this week, we can rest from the futility of trying to make ourselves or our work into something permanent or immortal. That is God's work. That's his side of the yoke. That's his resurrection work. He is the God who seeks, seeks out what slips away and makes all things new. That's something to rest in. <clears throat> We have a lot to learn from the Lord of the Sabbath, what to rest from, what to rest in. O Christ, our Sabbath, you have fashioned us to function best 
in rhyming lines of work and rest. And it's still true, our hearts are restless till they rest in you. Amen. That's what I have prepared. Thank you for listening. I want to mention the Bible Project here. In a moment, we're just going to have some questions, some discussion, comments. But I mentioned N.T. Wright being one of the best people I've read on what did Jesus do with the Sabbath. One of the other best resources I've come across is the Bible Project. Their video, they have a five-minute video on the Sabbath. I may show that at the very end if I can figure out how to do it. (laughs) But in five minutes, they take you through Sabbath, through the whole Bible, in a beautiful, powerful way. So if you forgot things I said tonight, this will sum it all up. And they have a bunch of podcasts on every aspect of the the Sabbath, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Mm. Super helpful, very good, very helpful. So Mm. if you want to get deep, you can go deep sea diving. (laughs) You want to play in the shallow end, there's a five-minute video. (laughs) But either way, the Sabbath, you're going to learn about it in the scriptures. Well, with that, let's have some questions. I put these questions up. These are more for you to go away with, to think about, but also they could lead into questions right now. But maybe you have something right off the bat, something confusing, something needing clarification, a question, so on. in Genesis 1 and then with the it is finished um, about um, work being completed because I think so much of our lives like projects are rarely completed or life is rarely like finds this sort of completeness and so um, yeah I guess it sort of it helps reframing because I think my beginning question was like well how do we ever find any sort of complete you know completeness when like whatever is really ever finished and then realizing what's complete isn't, I mean, isn't necessarily like, you know, our work might be ongoing or whatever else, but this completeness finds its rest in Christ, and therefore when we rest in Christ, that's when we'll experience the finish of it, versus yes. the other sort of things that we might be trying to finish up. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, do we ever finish anything? Totally, yeah. I don't know if we do. I mean, Paul said had something of that near the end of his life. He had a sense of finishing, but I, uh, yeah, I kind of see it. God calls, we respond with what we can offer, and he completes. <laughs> we offer it up to him. I find a lot of what I do, I, I just offer back up to him and say, man, this, this is all I can do. <laughs> and I offer it to you to finish, to make something of it beyond my efforts should be a regular part, I think, of our prayer life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We'd be a lot less frustrated. But yeah, if you look at if you look at the Gospel of John, I mean there's clues all the way through it that what Jesus is doing is a new creation. Creation language is right there from the very beginning to the very end. Mm-hmm. He, yeah, he with his father are doing something new. 
doing a new creation. The cross is significant, of course, <laughs> crucial part. Ecclesiastes specifically about not trying to make ourselves, you know, immortal or like mm-hmm. lasting forever. Do you have yeah. like specific like verses for that, or is it just uh, the general? Like that's the general mm-hmm. take. Yeah, I think. Um, yeah, the point is we're we're kind of seeking for something in our own hand, the works of our own hands, to be something yeah. permanent. Okay. But the works of our hands aren't that. Only God can do that with the works of our hands. Mm-hmm. He can establish the works of our hands. But we need Him to do that. That's not just something we can do. But um, but yeah, this was. Um, I remember somebody came to uh, Swiss Liberty, and uh, and he was telling me about all these friends of his who were trying to work towards making humans immortal, and who really think they could do it. I mean, they're they're going for it. I mean, they're working their tails off. And it's just like, you don't have to do that. <laughs> it's already been taken care of. You know, you're working for something that's already been solved. Um, I mean, we're still waiting for death to be conquered in some way. It's a final enemy. But D-Day has happened. You know, you don't, you can spend your time on other things. <laughs> Important things, like loving your neighbor. Um, and so, yeah, I just thought, I think, though, that desire... To, to make ourselves immortal without God mm-hmm. is in us. It goes back to the, the pyramids, the pharaohs, <laughs> um, and all that wasted time when you could have been figuring out how to love people better. Uh, yep. I think that's what Sabbath rest does. It lets us know what we don't have to waste our time on. It gives us more focus for what's important. What's, what's our job to do? And what's God's job? Mm-hmm. Don't get those mixed up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just to, uh, I, I wonder if we can clarify with Genesis 1, 1 and 2. Will you, I mean, I was spinning, my mind was spinning out a little bit. Were you saying that the ex nihilo teaching is a thing of the past? Or are you, uh, how, how did you mean that? It, it seems that he, he created, but then there was chaos of what he's created. That's how I've always understood it. Uh, so that it isn't as if there was some something there, something there independently of his creation. That because that raises huge issues, as you know as well as I do. Yeah, exactly. No, I'm not saying that, but <clears throat> but just that there's some mystery there as to how this got here. I think the the whole Bible teaches ex nihilo. He spoke. Happened. He, he spoke. Yeah. But when did this earth come? When and how did it... Why is it this in this form? I think it's, it's intentionally mysterious. Um, but it also is giving us a pattern of what how God works. So just to clarify, I'm not saying ex nihilo is wrong. <laughs> I think scripture from beginning to end says that. Yeah, I mean, that's Paul... God speaks into existence what did not exist. Everything, there's nothing eternal except God. 
but this, yeah, these, this second verse, there's a bit of mystery there. And I think that's part of the intention of, we don't know how it all played out. Like, where did this snake thing come from? It was the fall didn't even happen yet. And it's going around tempting. I think we're not told we're not, that's maybe not something we're supposed to know. Um, and just like, yeah, that second verse, well, how, how did things get that way? Why are they like that way? We don't know, but we do know what God does with things that are formless and empty. He orders them and he fills them. It certainly yeah. suggests, if, at least to us now, of enormous amount of time and extraordinary things happening yeah. Exactly. before anything like this earth was ever going. Yeah, so even if you were to stick to a literal six days when it's mentioned, mm. you still don't, you know, before that first day, how long was the earth there? It didn't say, mm-hmm. you know. Well, there was no rising of the sun. I mean, I don't think that's the point of the passage. It's not trying to tell us exact days, in my opinion. But even if that was your take, that's what you think is happening. Well, you could have an old earth. <laughs> There's nothing in the text that says you could have an old earth theory. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a totally different direction. What, what have you worked out as a... Uh, for you and your family as a way to make this real in the way you actually do Sundays mm-hmm. or Saturday, whatever you would. How, how do you, <laughs> or Thursdays here? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that, see, that's the point already. Because you're partly uh, and, a pastor. And, uh, how, how do you, <clears throat> what have you worked out for? That, that's an important point as well. Yeah. It, it's not a fixed day, but it is a, a one in seven. One in sometimes. seven is a pattern. I, yeah, that's a creational mm-hmm. pattern, it seems to me. So I think that's, yeah, you can't get out of that. You're going to do better with a seventh-day rest, and you're going to do poorly without one. So, yeah, it's wise to keep a seventh. So we still try to keep one day where we're not doing a regular thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, depending on what day that is, would depend on what we do. We like to go out a lot of times and get on the water, go for a walk. Mm-hmm. Uh, not overload it with a bunch of stuff to do, but we all have our different Sabbath practices too that we help help us enjoy God's creation, help us to tune out uh, from what we normally think about. So yeah, for me it's paddleboarding. I am so relaxed on the water. <laughs> that just is, uh, helps me see God's beauty, helps me think of the creation story. Um, but I think also, I mean, the scriptures, even though they're, now the, the Sabbath day is flexible, and Paul gives, says we're supposed to give grace to each other as to how we work this out. Um, but Hebrews itself will say, you know, some have neglected meeting with each other. So because Sabbath has changed doesn't mean we stop meeting with each other. That's usually, yeah, someone's going to walk away from Jesus eventually when they stop meeting with the people of God on a regular weekly basis. So I'm not, I, for me, I'm still, I'm still for gathering on Sunday. It's great we have this day off. We live in a time in, in history where we don't have to work on Sundays. Why not? And if you can't work, if you can't gather on Sundays, you can gather on other days. It's not a, a fixed rule. But, uh, Marty? Well, I was just thinking, um, we're barraged where we just we get so barraged with the news, with 
with data with over <laughs> all huge amount of information information overload that we can't do anything about a lot of it and I wonder whether particularly in our culture where screens are such a huge part of life whether that wouldn't be a wise thing to put aside one day a week I mean I think for some people that's it's more of a more of an addiction, more of a obviously a real is a real addiction for some people. Yeah. Um, for others, not really an addiction, but still something that you you feel insecure without that phone. Yeah. You know? um, and whether whether a good Sabbath practice wouldn't be to lock up your phone and <laughs> turn off your unplug your computer. I don't know. For yeah. um, for many of us, and, and turn off the news. I mean, I I find the news. I feel very torn because I feel like I need to I need to know what's going on in the world and it's really hard to even know when when you're here what you're hearing how much of it's alternate alter, alternate realities it isn't actually even true you know, it's so hard to know and and that I find can can be unbelievably rest destroying yes mm-hmm. yeah I think that's where the rhythms of work and rest <laughs> I mean, certainly there's a seventh-day rhythm of work and rest, but there can be a daily work, rest, with rhythm, and Mm -hmm. for things, too. Yeah, like our gadgets. I mean, yeah, I've heard countless stories of people saying, man, how much their device gets them anxious and far from restful. And then when they just even have a few hours where it's just put away, they can't believe how better, much better they feel. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, that can apply to so many different things, but... I think there's that sense of, yeah, never enough bricks, mm-hmm. never enough information, mm-hmm. never enough work. And uh, when that's at work, yeah, we mm-hmm. need to check. I mean, that's what a regular rhythm, mm-hmm. a re- regular rest can do for us. Yeah, which is what I like. Yeah, here, when we have a, a discussion, mm-hmm. lunch, devices away. Right. You don't need to have them for an hour. <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking, yeah. you know, you hear, you hear somebody so many parents we're, we're, we're beyond this now our kids are all growing up and they, there were no those, none of those devices existed when we were raising our kids it was a lot easier <laughs> but how many parents say well I you know I, I, I can't make my child I can't take this phone away I mean all their friends they're, they're you know it would ruin their life they're <laughs> their friends all do this you know but but it, I'm, I'm glad I'm not a parent in that situation but I I'm sure that's a very a very real struggle for parents. It We're is. trying to, um, you know. Yeah. And it's a big deal for, yeah, kids. Yeah, it's like they call it like the, their security blanket. Yeah, yeah. You know, so what? I can't be without my phone. Yeah. And to give them, it says, actually, you can. It's yeah. not that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, it's not that, you know, we've been without phones for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> kids have been <laughs> just fine without phones. But I feel like with now and COVID, it becomes even more of an issue. Because, like, now, that's, like, their main way to contact mm-hmm. their friends. Which is mm-hmm. so wild to think about. Yeah, if you can't see people in person, it's really sad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tara? Sorry to speak again. Somebody else had their hand raised there. But uh, I, think, I think the idea that, that creation is comes out of chaos is really helpful, especially thinking about like last week's lecture, just political chaos situation that we're in, the chaos of COVID. And even like 
the idea that um, I actually think formless and void is a really bad translation because <laughs> it's not really formless or it's not really void or empty. It's it's this like undifferentiated mass. There's like this substance that's chaotic. And so there's something about God creating out of this chaos that like I think it actually speaks really well into our sort of like current all sorts of situations because yeah, we don't have to look far to find chaos and for it to need to be ordered in some capacity and anyway, so I just thought on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and the connection there with the Exodus too. I mean, these stories were put together. Something very similar was going on. God ordered their life out of Egypt. Even the chaos of the Red Sea and the deliverance beyond that. Yeah, through the waters. There's a lot of lots of similarities between Genesis and Exodus. I think Nate, and a couple over here, and. Yeah, when I was, I think, 13, I got asked to play travel baseball, uh, which required my parents to, like, travel on Sundays mm-hmm. uh, for baseball games mm-hmm. around the Midwest, and my parents said no, uh, just because mm-hmm. it would have been restful for them to do all that driving, but that essentially, like, killed my dream of playing baseball, like, mm-hmm. in college, just mm-hmm. because, like, all my friends who play travel baseball... They're the ones that went on to play at the college level mm. and that kind of thing. So I don't fault my parents for doing it because I totally understand it. But I know that's like a tension for a lot of parents yes. now. Like for kids who have the dream of playing a college sport, you know, a smaller chance of maybe playing it professionally someday. Like you really got to, you don't have to, but it really, really helps to play travel sports, which is a lot of times Saturdays and Sundays. Yep. and Costs a lot of money, but also costs a lot of time as well too. So I was just wondering if you had any suggestions or thoughts for that. That's yeah. a really good question. It's really good. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, because I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with playing sports on on Sunday or Saturday or any day. Uh, but I I do wonder how much sports are really enjoyable now. <laughs> the the older you get. This, the competition is so strong for a lot of sports and a lot the pressure from parents even to put on their kids sometimes to win, to be the best. I wonder if that kills some of the joy these sports were supposed to have in the first place. Um, and so that's part of course, maybe not just coming from them, but even from just the broader culture. That I think when you're younger, maybe it's less so, but... Um, but that's, yeah, something to do. I, I think it's also good for kids to see we can't say no to something. Just because people are doing it doesn't mean we have to do it. Um, and that if, if we're going to gather as the people of God and this is the time and the day we do it, we see that as very significant. And we that might mean we're going to have to say no to some things that are good, but that would just keep us from meeting with God's people. There might be other ways you can imagine that, and yeah, maybe you go to a church that meets on a Sunday evening or a Saturday night, um, but I just wouldn't, sports is is an idol for a lot of people too, so <laughs> sometimes it feels like, I mean, I, I know a lot of people like who just, sports is the priority, and church gathering with God's people, I can do that when I have time, but that has to fit around my sports schedule, and what's more permanent is is our kids sports and so I, I'm against that as a Christian um, and, but 
I think meeting with God's people is more important than our sports. But I think we should also try to get our kids to play sports. Sports are great things. <laughs> um, maybe others have a better response than that. Yeah, that's uh, that's a hard one. My parents did the same thing to me. Mm. I swam competitively for many years, and lots of swim meets are on Sundays. Mm-hmm. And they would just talk to the coaches. I swam on a USSC and said, she's not swimming on Sunday, period. She can swim in other meets, but not any of the ones on Sunday. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the coaches kind of worked with it. I mean, I'm sure it... I didn't have a dream like you to really <coughs> long term, but I think there was also a sense of, like Dave's it was good for my parents to to say, we have this freedom to say no. Um, and you can, you can be involved in other meets. Did you see that at the time? Or was it upsetting? You didn't like so many, so... I felt kind of weird, you know, like yeah. I had to tell people on the team, like, I, I can't be there because it's Sunday. Well, my dad's a pastor, so that was part of it too, but... Um, yeah, I probably reveled a little bit in, like, I'm a radical Christian. <laughs> so I don't think I was too mad at that time. I, I wonder if, if more, I mean, if, if more Christian parents were to sort of band together mm-hmm. <laughs> and go to coaches and yeah. say, look, um, our, you know, our kids want, we want our kids to play sports, our kids want to play sports, you know, I'm, we have a grandson who has played sports every Sunday for, for ages and church has just become less less of a reality in their family um, for other reasons too um, because of church choices and various other reasons but but you just wonder it, there's there's a lot of church going people around I mean and even in, in, in this state there's a lot of Catholics and Catholic parents and you think if 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 um, an ecumenical group of parents mm-hmm. could, if it would do any good for them to try to pressure, <laughs> put some pressure on coaches and sports teams and say, and say, um, you know, church is important to our families and, and uh, isn't there, you know, can't we do something about this? Or my yeah. dad would even say, why can't the meet be at 3? Why does it have to be at 9 a.m. Right. or 10 a.m.? Right, like, exactly. Just seems really you just think of enough like, parents yeah. spoke up. Yeah. Maybe, it, at least in some communities, it might make a difference. Yeah. I don't know. That's a good point. Joshua, Sarah, I don't know which one. Did you just sort of say about this? Sort of a parallel question. Yeah. Or, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> this is such a uh, just rich and beautiful mm-hmm. gospel work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and it in it, I hear the freedom to to rest on any day and every day, and so in some ways, like I'm I'm hearing sort of the dissonance between that and the social justice imperative that is there in Exodus, which I think this conversation touches on because I mean, like it, even in my 40 years, I remember as a kid, you know, like, it would be a question if a place would be open on Sunday. Mm-hmm. And now, of course everything's open on Sunday. And and I don't know, like, have 
sporting events, like have, they haven't always happened on Sundays, mm-hmm. but now they do. And so it, I'm just curious if you have come across any sort of social, of recent social history on, uh, on sort of the, lo- the cultural <coughs> loss of Sunday um, as a Sabbath day, because it seems like that has just accelerated um, dramatically in recent years. Yeah, I mean, well, I think the reason for the weekend is is lost on people, and that yeah, it wasn't just recreation, do whatever you want. It was holy unto the Lord. You know, that was, um, and so yeah. Now it's like, well, why do we need to have uh, a day off? Other than it's just important to have rest from our work, and I think that's still a good thing. I think that. Um, we still need to fight for that, for social justice, but um, we, so tell me, yeah, clarify your question. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, yeah. yeah, I think I'm, uh, yeah, I'm hearing, I guess like in, in the sports question, like yeah, that's sort of recreation. Yeah. I, I mean like, mm-hmm. and, and I think there's also like a way in which we, we do recreation like we do work. Also, we don't actually recreate differently. <laughs> I mean, like yeah. it may be a different thing, but the the drive is mm-hmm. the same. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so so maybe we could kind of keep that to the side. But yeah, I'm I'm thinking about the social justice question of, um, you know, like there's not there's not a day when everybody gets to rest. <laughs> yeah. You know, like. My recreation or what might be restful to me requires that somebody else be showing up and doing their job. You yeah. Know? And, um, yeah, so I think I'm, I'm just wondering about that. And I'm thinking about how it, it makes whatever rest is all the more individualistic, you know? Like it's not a shared thing culturally. Yeah. Um, and therefore I think like, it becomes more vulnerable to just demise. So it doesn't happen because we don't see other people resting. Um, That's, I think that's really the heart of my Mm -hmm. question is like, what do we do about, is there, is there something to be done? You know? Um, Yeah. I mean, I think that's maybe, yeah, partly what laws on employment are supposed to be about. You know, you only have, A full-time job is only so many hours a week, and so you, you should be protected from working too much, and you should have some kind of day off from your job. I think that that's something we should fight for. I don't think necessarily we should fight for everything being closed on Sunday. I don't think that... I mean, yeah, like firefighters, hospital, like we, there's things that it's important to have open. Um, we live in a different time, and so... But I do think... I, Giving people, ensuring that people have a, a weekly rest is something we should fight for, for people and ensure. Um, but that, but that does pose problems when we don't all share the same day, then it can get, um, it can get lost and we don't have the same common, common good sometimes. Marty. Well, there was an organization, and this was back when we lived in England, so this was quite a while ago. I, I don't know what became of it, but it was an, a Christian organization called Jubilee something. And a guy named Michael Schluter, Englishman, 
and they actually did a lot of really they they didn't do this as Christ, as they didn't advertise themselves as Christians but they had a huge campaign in Britain called keeps keep Sunday special mm. not holy not church but they, their argument was for shopkeepers for people who that shopkeepers should not have to work with they yeah. they pushed the whole thing of it should be a family day it should be a, t- a day to see your neighbors to see your family and mm. and actually they had some real success um for some years in britain and i i don't know what's become of that i don't but it was it was very much with you know for their theology was very much creational this is this is a this is a good thing for all of society not just for christians and so they framed it that way. Yeah. And they, they really had quite a lot of success. Um, for a while, I don't know what's become of it. But I, I also think of just, you know, when we were in Switzerland, we didn't live there like you did for a long time. But but the the pattern of, you know, shops all closed still, down totally, for, yeah. I mean, I don't know if that's still the case, but oh, yeah. we, closed like down for a long lunch time, you know? Yeah. And I remember being... Frustrated because I was there for such a short time, and I had to, and I was going to be in Switzerland only for this. I only had this one day before catching a plane home. So we were there for the meetings, and I needed to get to these stores in in uh, in Agla, and they were on their lunch break, which was two hours. Yeah. And in fact, I went to buy I went to buy a watch from um, Monsieur Moret, I think his name is somebody, friend of Libri, and I got there just as he was closing for lunch, and he said, "Oh, come home and have lunch with us." Yeah. <laughs> It was just such a different culture. It was so lovely. They yeah. invited us and just invited us home, and we had lunch for them with them for two hours. And I went back and bought my watch. But but I'm just thinking, in I don't know how you get that in America today. Yeah. But there are pockets. And it's helpful to see that it's possible. Yeah. And right. that it can be great. Yeah. And uh, and things don't fall apart. I mean, Switzerland's yeah. very, it's very organized. Very <laughs> Nothing's falling apart. Yeah, so not at all. Seems, yeah, but it's yeah, it is. It's frustrating, but then you're like, oh yeah, we don't have to work all the time. We can take yeah. breaks. Things can be closed. Can go home. And uh, Joshua, and then yeah. I was just gonna throw back your your comment. I don't have an answer on this. Uh, yeah. Or like definitive uh, or anything. I mean, it might not be a big surprise. I did not grow up playing sports, but. Um, uh, no, I think of like I just after after thinking about it for a little bit, I thought about um, when when Kobe and Gianna Bryant, you know, and his other style on the point, like they had just gone to mass that morning, like, and for him it was like if she was going to play basketball, like they were still going to church, like it wasn't like an either or, and just knowing how <clears throat> this principle of like. Uh, it's not necessarily just this day, but it's like we're not going to forsake gathering. We're not going to miss the sacraments, um, and yeah, I don't know. I mean, as tragic as that was, I just there's to me something has just stuck with me. They're like they were just coming from mass, and like they were where they were when the helicopter went down because he he said we're going to church, and that was like part of the Bryant, you know, family approach. And I think there's ways. My dad is also a pastor and struggled with, uh, I mean, I didn't know this growing up, but uh, he told me this later, like, just struggling with parishioners who, yeah, their kids are, like, 10, and then they're in soccer, and then they're in baseball, and then they're just, they're gone, and, like, the family's gone, and, uh, because <clears throat> the priority is put 
like just there and yeah I don't know there's there's a sense where so many things are <clears throat> in a home are caught more than they're taught and I think from early on when I had nothing to back this up besides <laughs> anecdotal or uh, or my anecdotes or assumptions but yeah when dads like go don't really go to church or they go to church but they're not really there and then it's like rush home so they can watch the game um that culture in the home is like what matters is the game like and then uh yeah i think kids kids pick up on that like what what matters are these things and so i think there's ways to find there's potentially ways to find out to find how to how to do it i mean i i actually really respect y'all's parents saying like nope we're (laughs) we're going to church um but I, I don't know. I just do wonder if there are ways to sort of say this is our priority, and we're not. If we're going to do this, we're not losing this. This, this is not an either or thing. But uh, or sorry, maybe it is an either or. If like we're not, we're not letting go of church. We're not letting go of forsaken together. And um, I don't know. That was just a thought on that. But again, I don't have a. Maybe my maybe Lily will play sports. I'm not anticipating Jacob <laughs> on Sunday sports, but oh, okay. No, no, go ahead. I was going to take it a different. I just had a different, uh, different. Well, I wouldn't mind just even hearing more if you have any more to say. I love, I love what you did with with Genesis, pulling that out, the temple imagery, the sevens, the all of that, and even how we've talked a bit about you know, the tohu vavohu and all of that. Yeah, I would just get one just sort of on a, if there is anything else, any other things you'd want to say to connect that reading of Genesis with the creation ex nihilo, just other things maybe you'd mm-hmm. want to see or say. If there's not, it's no big deal. I was just curious about mm-hmm. that. And then I kept thinking in this uh, <clears throat> about, do you, in your reading, do you see any, like less than helpful examples of what a Sabbath looks like. I think of Jonathan Edwards as one of his resolutions was, "I will never laugh on a Lord's Day." Oh no! Uh, you know that he wrote when he was a young man. No. No. And there's a part of me, there's a part of me that like actually really admires that like this is a special, this is a sacred day, and he took took this seriously. And there's another part of me that's like. Like, oh, come on, like, come on, Edwards, like, uh, if there's any day to laugh, and it would be this day, you know, but I, and I don't know if that's sort of New England Puritan culture, I don't know what that was, (laughs) I I don't know his context super well, but, um, so one, just, if you have any more thoughts on the creation, like the tradition, like, kind of you said, like, a canonical reading is creation ex nihilo, any ways you would put that in conversation with this, like, Formal, but if not, I'm just curious to hear. I'm just curious to hear more because this is an interesting thing to me. But if there's nothing more to say, I'd love to also then hear on the other more practical. What are not good examples of people, or less than helpful examples of folks who have tried to do a Sabbath, but maybe have done it in ways that are missing some of the heart of Sabbath. I'm just curious. Yeah, I probably don't have a ton to say on the creation ex nihilo. I think a lot of people who are emphasizing this, hey, there was the, the formless void, water. Oh, wait, creation, nihilo, we're throwing that out now. 
And I, just because that's true, I don't think you need to throw out creation ex nihilo. Um, I think you can still have that and still have God's working with this stuff and doing something with it. We don't know exactly how it got there, but still trust that God called it into existence. But, um, but I don't, yeah, that's, I don't think that's the, the, there's lots of things being said in Genesis, I think. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And so I, but I do think the broader, you know, if that's not as clear in Genesis as it used to be, it's still clear in other parts of scripture for me yeah. that talk about creation ex nihilo. Um, Can you just say what that means in case somebody doesn't know what ex nihilo means? So creating out of, out of nothing. nothing. So yeah. like Hebrews has the phrase uh, or the verse, we know that the worlds were created out of, I mean, it doesn't say creation ex nihilo. Yeah, you know like I'm, invisible things. Yeah, what was made. yeah, what was made was made out of things that weren't visible. Um, and certainly, yeah, the bigger picture of scripture is everything. He made yeah. everything. He made everything. Yeah. There's yeah, nothing eternal but him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so yeah, I still have yeah, I still have a strong sense of creation ex nihilo yeah. in yeah. my thinking from other passages. But the strongest passages for me aren't necessarily that early. If I didn't have those other passages, I don't know if I, I would have a strong sense of creation ex nihilo. Yeah, just, just from Genesis. Genesis one. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, have sure. it from other passages. Yeah. yeah. So I, with those other passages, I reread Genesis in a little different yeah, light. Yeah. Um, but then your other question was about practically. The yeah, se- yeah, just because sometimes uh, <clears throat> people can become. In the same way that maybe the Pharisees were be, like becoming pretty rigid on yeah. what, what a Sabbath looked like, and um, I think there's been a rediscovery of Sabbath in the yeah. last for evangelicals ish people in the last fifteen years or ten years. So I'm just curious if you, in your reading, yeah, I mean, saw things that were less helpful as practices or less helpful approaches or. Yeah, I th- I think the I do have sometimes a struggle of like oh yeah a, a serious time with God but then hopefully a place for laughter um, and like God says I think it's in Isaiah that you know if you're gonna call I want you to call my Sabbath a delight and so if that's missing I think we're missing out on Sabbath that I mean the whole language of Genesis is a language of delight when God saw that it was good. That's a language of delight. It's a language of um, God seeing. Um, it's not just good. It could be translated as beautiful, too. God admiring, delighting in what he's made in the works of his hands. That should be part of our our Sabbath, whatever that looks like. Uh, so celebration. I would want to err more on celebration. I think that's even more of the tone of the New Testament. Celebrating. So Champagne for breakfast. Yeah, that was NT, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but and and uh, Jonathan Edwards, I know he like it was like a hundred or two resolutions he had, right? When he was that young, so he, he's a very serious man. But I think, yeah, he he maybe lightened up a little bit. Pre conversion, yeah. Like chase like carbons away with like how strict he was about the Sabbath. Like I feel like he's there's some story about his congregation like diminishing in half because they were like. I don't know. You're too serious. <laughs> I, don't know. Yeah. I just remember reading, reading Lonia reading the Laura Ingalls Wilder books, <laughs> Little House on the Prairie, those books. Oh my gosh. The, I forget which one, or maybe it was more books, but Sabbath was just agony for the kids. They for had his, the, the for her father, particularly. 
when yeah. her father was a boy. It's in Little House in the Big Woods. Oh, and it's her horrible. father tells the story. We talked yeah. about this earlier. Her father, you know, sort of gives a "you think it's bad now" yeah. when I was a boy story about how he and his brothers had to sit on a hard wooden bench and practice With reading their catechism. And then one Sabbath, just the night, the evening before the Sabbath, they had finished this beautiful sled that they couldn't wait to try. Yeah. And they're sitting, itching to try out their sled on perfect new snow. Mm-hmm. But they're with their catechism. And their father falls asleep and takes a nap. And they all sneak out. And, <laughs> and blow for free. And hit, hit the hill, the yeah, gospel. on the sled. But lo and behold, a big Doesn't black pig right. wanders out of oh. the woods and... Uh, ends up with them on the sled oh, yes. <laughs> and squeals. I mean, it's hilarious. It's like, okay, well, here's some space for laughter. Yes. <laughs> and they go sliding down the hill with so the pig squealing and their father wakened to witness all of it and then punish them. <laughs> See, that's horrible. I mean, your view of... Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it seems to me with Jesus, the Sabbath gets bigger and more surprising and... Like things get flipped around, and that's that's something to laugh about. Like not laugh at, but like incongruencies perceived, right? It's like whoa, the grace is that, you know. So it should we should be laughing at the goodness of it all, and not. Um, it seems to me if it's if it becomes something miserable for children, it's something really screwed up. Because no. because particularly in the late nineteenth century, early twentieth century, when you had sort of elite moralism like this. Yeah. Uh, it was part of them chucking the faith when they yeah, grew up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was hugely serious. It wasn't just a little cutting out their a little bit of fun. It was they associated a, uh, something very grim with, with yeah. the gospel. Yeah, and I wonder maybe if we've swung from that and we're not the lack the, the seriousness is gone now. Like because I think most it, it's an older generation that remembers this strictness mm-hmm. of, of a Sunday. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, I'm sure it's still around, but I don't hear of that very much anymore. Mm-hmm. Sabbath is pretty loose for most people. And mm-hmm. uh, so I wonder... One of my friends was... Uh, I can't remember who it was even. But, but uh, said her parents had special toys that came out on Sunday. Mm-hmm. So they weren't allowed to play with them other days. This was Sunday because this is a day... To, have special fun. <laughs> I appreciate oh, that's it, great. especially. I mean, that, that doesn't last for that many years, but it's, it's, a, it's the right idea. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I think feasting on on Sundays is a, is how we should do it. That's, I know, in our church, that's, uh, it got killed with COVID, but it was a regular practice after the church. Break out the food. Let's celebrate. This is, we're supposed to be festive. Is, that's what uh, this is supposed to be about, and then people go and enjoy God's creation or do yeah something fun. I mean, definitely through this, I'm I'm way less. I, I think I had a lot more Pharisee rules, especially early on as a Christian. But even till not too long ago, uh, as far as like what I thought I should have, and it's nodding over there. And this, yeah, really, it's like okay, Sunday is not. The New Sabbath. This, the New Testament does not say that. I think practically it's come out that way, and I think it's really good to have a day off, and that this has been the day. I don't want to undo Sunday. I don't want. I think it's really good. It's a it's a good thing. But I don't think we're sinning 
if we practice a Sabbath on another day or if we gather with God's people on another day. I don't think that's what the New Testament has done. Um, it's not spelled out like that. That's what's happened. So I, I'm, a, I'm a lot more flexible. And at the same time, I don't want to let go of where we're at. So yeah. I don't know exactly what to do with all that. But There's quite um, a few people asking on Facebook in different ways. Um, yeah, do you still think one day out of seven days remains um, God's design for us? One in seven days? Yeah, can yeah. You? Yeah, like one, one day out of seven days, even if it isn't Sunday. Um, you know how you, you said something about the Sabbath kind of bursting out yeah. of Sunday or bursting out of Saturday and first out of Sunday, and you, you can find Sabbath rest on any day. Yeah, I think that's why there's three or four people asking, well, does that kind of do away with the need to have one special Sabbath day? within a seven-day cycle. That's what several people are asking. Yeah, I think we still live by, we still need the principle of one in seven. Mm -hmm. So we still need a Sabbath rest from whatever we do. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't have to be Sunday necessarily or Saturday. Um, Yeah, I don't think that's the case. Uh, Yeah, we have not been mandated in the New Testament to have Sunday as a day off. That didn't even exist in the early with the early Christians. They yeah. met, like I said, before the work day on Sunday. That day wasn't a day off for centuries later. So, and they weren't fighting for it. They didn't have a sense of, oh, the New Testament is telling us we got to fight for this to be a day off. That just happened over time. Yeah. Um, so, it's great now that we have it, and I don't want to lose it. <laughs> I think it's great, and that's practically a better day to meet. For most people, yeah. um, but it's not—you're not sinning if you don't, uh, and people aren't sinning if they're working on a Sunday. That's there's nothing. If we're going to go with Sabbath law, we're going to go back to Saturday. Um, yeah. Someone else is asking, or just says, Jesus said the Sabbath was made for humans, not humans for the Sabbath. Is it perhaps for our own good that we are to rest for renewal? Recreation, even tissue repair, <laughs> like physical, yeah. psychological repair. Yes. Yeah. So even though we're not under the law anymore, and we're not required to keep the Sabbath day, which would be Saturday, mm-hmm. we're still under creation. Yeah. So we still need rhythms of rest and work, work and rest. So we still need to sleep, and we still need, I think, one day and seven off. And it's great to have that day off and the day we gather being the same day. Otherwise, we're going to have to get up really early on Monday morning. <laughs> we could go back to that, but I, yeah, I don't think we need to. Um, I have a question of my own. I'm just also yeah. in charge of these questions. Um, I kind of wanted to ask it while Joshua was here because it's probably sort of a question for both of you, but I was thinking back to his lecture on the resurrection and or, or on Holy Saturday, actually. And he talked about the kind of victory dance that Jesus did in hell, essentially. <laughs> um, and I was just wondering how that relates to Jesus resting on Holy Saturday in your mind or in what you study. Yeah, I don't think it's Friday like... Night. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, his body was laying there, but he wasn't... 
in his body, he was in the realm of the dead. But, uh, so yeah, it's not like everything perfectly matches to creation. I think there's enough to help you to see. There's clues that are given to say, this is a new creation. And, um, and yeah, Jesus was resting in one sense, but he was also going to the realm of the dead to spread his victory. But it wasn't like he was doing, in a sense, a new work. It was the outworking of his finished work. So he was just, it was like D-Day happened and he was just bringing the victory into the first realm, which was the realm of the dead. Which I think, yeah, Joshua's lecture on that was excellent. He, um, he rearranged the geography of hell, which is, yeah, a really great lecture that he gave on that. But yeah, he wasn't totally resting. He was... Well, I guess yeah. I was probably kind of giving you a leading question a little bit, like, yes, he wasn't totally resting, so is that even speaking even more to working from a place of mm. rest? <laughs> you know, like, he could do this this work in the realm of the dead from the place of resting. I don't think that's too metaphorical. Yeah, I think it's um, Schmemann who talks about this, and as far as Sabbath rest isn't inactivity, mm-hmm. but it could, it's something that's revitalizing and refreshing. Mm-hmm. I think it was Heather who said she noticed that at the end of her time here, she was not just rested, but refreshed. And I think that's another way you can translate, come to me and I will give you rest, is I could give you refreshment. And I think that should be part of our gatherings. Is is rest in that it's yeah revitalizing us, mm-hmm. refreshing us, which could giving us bring us to a point of dancing, or that because we've just been so filled with life um, that we're yeah we're ready to go. <laughs> and uh, I mean it's like playing sports. Sports is um, you're not resting, but it's restful. It's fun, and afterwards you're you're revitalized. So just an, an interesting. Um, historical fact, I think it was under, I was asking because I can't remember the details, but under, under Lenin, um, in, in communist Russia, he instituted a one day in ten, um, for everybody, you know, one day of work, nine days, sorry, one day of rest to nine days of work, and the, the, the work animals started dying. Wow. Um, it was too much. It was, wow. it was again, it was under, it was against the creational pattern of one and seven. And I just think it's so significant that, that those commands, that the, those commands speak of the animals, it's the strangers, the servants, the, you know, the, everyone needs, needs that one day in rest. And, yeah. Um, and the land. To, yeah. yeah. The, the, and the land. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. really, yeah. It's, it's but beautiful. I, I also, I'm, I'm still, I'm, I'm still struggling with, um, Nate's, question and just as Nate's experience and the experience of other kids for whom Me too. sport yeah for whom yeah. you know a kid who's really gifted in a sport and that could give them a college scholarship and that could open up all sorts of doors for them mm-hmm. I'm just still struggling with with that and is there a way that churches could also uh, maybe um, modify with for these kids in other words have and I know a lot of Catholic churches have mass at different you know different times and you can go to mass at all sorts of different times of the day you just wonder if there's 
if there's some compromises or some way of organizing it so that a family with a kid <coughs> like that um, wouldn't just do do away with all meeting together and all worship, but be able to have it at a different time or something. I don't know. Large churches, a lot of them are able to do that. Yeah, do large that. churches can do Multiple. it. But yeah. <coughs> yeah, yeah. Esther's got something on that. I think just going off of that, though, there is something about Sabbath that is about depending on God to provide. Like that six days is enough to do yeah. what we need to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, like with the manna. Yeah. Like you were mm-hmm. talking about. Yeah. Um, so if the question is like, will there be enough money for college if he doesn't have a scholarship? That's kind of maybe mm-hmm. doing God's work for him. I mean, that's how I would see mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. If yeah, is it's kind of having a scarcity mindset, I guess. That like we have to do it. We have to take all seven days to mm-hmm. do these kinds of things. Um, so that's where I would kind of mm-hmm. wonder about that. Like, is that again worrying that there's somehow not enough? time in the six days to do the work. Mm. Uh, but it wouldn't just be yeah. about the money, it would be about the f- fun and the joy of right. being on a team, you know, being on a team. Anyway, I don't know. Yeah, my struggle with it is when it is something that a child is quite passionate about, yeah. or sk- skilled at, or not skilled at, but loves. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder with I was thinking about Joshua's comment about it being sometimes an either-or. I feel like that's an easy path to, like, resentment toward... Which it sounds like that wasn't either of your experience, um, which is good. But I think that when church becomes this, like... It's Sunday morning, and we're going to get there whether we like it or not, and we're all getting out the door, and it's happening because it's Sunday... For children who that's their experience from the beginning and they're missing out on a space where they feel, um, I don't know, just really alive and Mm -hmm. a lot of enjoyment, I don't know. I just, I struggle with that, even though, of course, I mean, obviously gathering with believers is essential. So, yeah, I think not trying to find that compromise is... I don't know, because, like, he turned out all right, but (laughs) that's really hard to be 13 and just have that not available, you know? Yeah, I think for my parents, it was less of an issue of being able to go to church. It was more just, like, if they're going to drive all around the Midwest every weekend Mm -hmm. for 10 or 12 weekends... Go from Michigan to Iowa, Whoa. to Wisconsin, and stuff like that. That just wasn't going to be restful for them. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they're going to miss church. We could still go to church in like Wisconsin Sunday morning. But, <laughs> like for them, it's just like they didn't want to do all the drive-in and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So, which I totally understand. It wasn't going to be restful for them. It was going to be maybe a little harder in their marriage, that kind of thing. So it was kind of like, well. You kind of sacrifice your kid's dream for the betterment of the family, you know, mm-hmm. and for the family to have rest and for them to be better, you know, have energy to be good parents and for their own marriage and things like that. And I actually think it makes you, I mean, it could be better parenting that says your dream is important 
and your skills are important, mm -hmm. but it's not going to become the center of the universe mm -hmm. for our family. That can actually be really damaging to a child and to a whole family, as your parents said, to just be like, okay, everything, everything is now um, negotiable for the sake of this child's dream. I don't know that that would be great parenting, mm -hmm. personally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Tricky thing, I think, those in, in our, when we're living in a society which offers things like this, which, I mean, at other times, in history, there have been different things that young people can get into and get good at, yeah. and didn't, wouldn't create this competitive sort of situation of, mm -hmm. of uh, t for time or for parents thing. But I think a lot of kids, you know, if they're good at something, that's what parents should want them to get, and 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 see. My old theology is this is growth and dominion, which is what we are as images of God. To, mm -hmm say that we can make a difference in the world and we can learn things and grow and get good at things. My goodness, what amazing. And it can make a, we can make a difference. And, and that's got to start, the earlier that can start, the better. And I think it, in adolescence and so on, there's all sorts of things that we, that someone who's young can attach themselves. For me, sports was very important mm -hmm. uh, about a, a growth of identity, of what I, what I can do, what I can't do, who am I anyway? And, and uh, that there wasn't those sorts of choices that I'd have to deal with. But because your parents didn't go to church. No, that's, that's true. <laughs> they weren't Christians. But, but, but uh, <laughs> it didn't get more serious about sports until later on altogether. Mm -hmm. but, but, but still, at a, at a young age, you could, uh, sports can be a, a very positive growth kind of thing in, in a way that I think one wants to be careful of and uh, to, to nurture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's not one answer for every family. Oh, for sure. Yeah, that's yeah. For sure. That's yeah. Mm -hmm. I think it's a call for each mm -hmm. each family to discern. Yeah, what's going on here is yeah. Can we make a way for this to happen? Mm -hmm. Still keep our priorities, not make this an idol or center, but also to say yes to mm -hmm. to our child and what they want to do. That's yeah. There's negotiating to do there. I think. Mm -hmm. Bob's you're going to say something. Yeah, I was just—I've just been thinking about this in terms of not sports at all, but um, our kids have moved across the world a couple times, and I know that it's like particularly—that has been particularly painful to one of our boys, and so that's painful to me. I feel like I've inflicted these wounds on him, and lately, as I've thought and prayed about it and talked to him about it too. I just, that's what I was speaking out of. I've had this sense of, uh, it actually would, it's actually been good for him to see us say, we love you, we want to care for you, we want to do what's best for you, yes, we want you to grow in dominion, um, but we are going to make decisions for you as your parents that you might not love, <laughs> but that are because you know, following what we believe to be God's leading, for example, is more important than mm -hmm. your personal passions. And there is a lot of negotiating to be done there, for sure, and it would be unique to each family, but it's just been helpful for me to realize these things I fear I've really wounded my kids with have hopefully also shown them um, yeah, the, maybe the costliness in some ways of prioritizing 
that we see Jesus is doing in our lives, which mm-hmm. mm-hmm. they want or don't want. So that's what I'm speaking of. Mm-hmm. It's not exactly applied, but it's related. <laughs> It's obviously we really care about <laughs> what happened to you. <laughs> feel your uh, feel that situation. Yeah, I feel it. Well, it's been just over two hours, so I think I'm going to call it. But thank you, everybody. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're going to have a Sabbath thank from you. a lecture. Somebody here wished you a very restful weekend. Yes. <laughs> thank you. Mm-hmm.